want to remember to pray for uh, Sharon Russell, who's recovering from knee surgery. And so uh, we'll pray for her in a minute here. But turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, chapter 3. And we've been doing a little series here in Thessalonians for the last 19 messages. And um, we're going to have one more message. I like to end things on a positive, even number. So we're going to have 20 messages that make up our series of Second Thessalonians. And just so you know, we're going to be having a little uh, topical message in between this and possibly some other Sundays, but also we'll be heading into the Gospel of John. And so if you're Uh, like the Gospel of John, start reading it. I don't know why you wouldn't like it. It's a great Gospel, but start reading it and you can be settling your mind and your heart in that. Uh, So we're continuing our our series here, Be Not Weary in Well-Doing, and Paul concludes here. It's amazing how he goes through this book, and he's such a prolific author, even though he's obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit to do what he does. He clearly has the ability and the skill to uh, communicate as well. And um, it's this brief little epistle, but there's so much packed in here. And up until really chapter 3, verse 5, we've been dealing with a lot of theological things, a lot of lofty things. We talked about the Lord Jesus and his coming in righteous judgment. We talked about the eternal retribution, the eternal destruction, it deals with the coming of Christ for his glorified church. It talks about the rapture. Um, it also talked about the day of the Lord and the uh, man of the Antichrist. We've been spending some time on him. And it talks about the gospel. It talks about sanctification. It talks about salvation. Just a lot of different things. And now he comes down in the closing words here. He gets very, very, you could say, practical to these young believers. Uh, No matter how lofty he got in his theological, he said, you know what? Uh, I don't want my theology necessarily to leave the ground. I want to be able to apply what I'm teaching you. And so he was never such an elevated man, even though he was very well educated, the Apostle Paul was, Pharisee, the whole nine yards. Um, When he came to Christ, he understood the importance of communicating the Word of God in a way that it can be applied, that it can be understood by everyone. And so this is what is going on here in the closing words of Second Thessalonians. He starts to talk about such a mundane thing as work. <laughs> and some commentators even say, man, where did he come up with this? You know, just kind of threw it in there. But we saw how that practically fits. And he didn't want to be so elevated in his teaching that it didn't apply to people. And we've talked about how in the Thessalonican church, um, they basically came from a pagan background, some of them. Some of them came from a Jewish background where, you know, the idea is in the Jewish background where the scribes and the Pharisees and all those people, all they do is sit around and study the law. And if you do anything else, you're just menial. You know, you don't really have a job. We just study the word of God. You know, so they would look down on anybody that actually had a real job. Well, some of those individuals were getting saved and coming into the church and bringing that mentality with them. And also, there was people in the Greek uh, culture, the Roman culture, that it was demeaning to work. They didn't have to work. They had slaves to do their work. They owned the land, and they hired slaves to do that for them, and they never lifted a finger to do anything. So they had all this time in their hands. That's why they had to be entertained with um, gladiators and all kinds of things to keep their time busy. And then there were some people that probably a combination of that as well as uh, they were misinformed. They thought somehow that Christ had come and now they're in the day of the Lord and they were kind of panicking. They were kind of freaking out because somebody wrote a letter saying it was from the Apostle Paul saying that, well, we know that Paul said that the Lord was going to come and you were going to be raptured out of here, but guess what? You're in the day of the Lord. And um, they believed that. And so they were a little conflicted in their theology and he had to write them in sort this out for them and communicate to them that no, you're not in the day of the Lord because you haven't been raptured yet. <laughs> and you're not going to be raptured, if you're not going to be raptured yet, you can't, you, you, the world cannot have the day of the Lord until the rapture happens. And we've gone over all of that. But he, he starts to talk about such a thing as work. 
And, you know, even with all their backgrounds and everything, we all know people and we've experienced in our own lives when we come to Christ, we don't always just instantly change. Everything becomes spiritual in our lives. No, we still have sin. We still are tempted. We still fall in a myriad of ways, probably. And so just becoming a Christian doesn't change everything immediately. And so this was a very young church filled with very young believers, uh, maybe a year old at the most. And so they were dealing with a lot of different issues from their bringing up, from their upbringing, from their culture. And one of them had to do with <clears throat> work. And so they, they started to think, well, we shouldn't work. We're just going to study the Bible. We're going to quit our jobs and just do nothing. Um, <clears throat> and if, if we need something, the church will provide it. <laughs> well, that's the wrong attitude to have, first of all. Um, the Bible says here, basically, that if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, remind, remember, this is not talking about your ability to work. There are some people that can't work. They're disabled for whatever reason. And the church should care for those people. But in this case, these people were able, but they were just unwilling. They were unwilling to work. And so we saw how important that is. And, you know, they had so many positive things going for them. They were not slack in their spiritual service. Um, they had the work of faith and the labor of love, Paul says. They, they did it with patience, he says, and endurance because they had hoped in the return of Christ. And they worked hard in their church. They worked hard in ministry. But they didn't want to do their jobs. <laughs> they just thought, you know what, um, at least some of them didn't want to do anything, any work at all. And so we're moving from this description of the Antichrist and the return of Christ and all that into this topic of work. And if you look back to your own upbringing, your own parents, depending on how old you are, you may say, you know what, my parents had a good work ethic. They knew what a hard day's work was. Or maybe your grandparents if you're younger. Um, today, unfortunately, we don't have that in our society for the most part. Um, there's a mentality that uh, people just want stuff, and they want it given to them. They don't want to have to work for it. And, you know, um, even going through this whole COVID thing, our government gave millions and billions and billions and billions of people stuff, only to find out later that a lot of it was misused. A lot of it wasn't even used for the right purposes. And like I said, it's one thing to help people out. But when you turn it into a, a political Santa Claus kind of a thing, it doesn't really uh, bode well for the ethic of work because then all of a sudden people feel what? They feel entitled. I don't have to work. If you don't believe me, go down to downtown San Francisco and start asking people, why don't you work? They'll tell you, I don't need to work. Why not? Because I get a check every week. I get a check twice a week from the city because I'm homeless. And they provide all my drugs. They provide my basic sustenance. Why would I want to work? See, and, and this is the culture that we've come to, unfortunately. And so America's drive to work hard uh, has been fleeting. Now, if you look back in our, 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 our country, you know, even though it's a very young country, we've come a long way. We've made a huge impact on the world because people had the ability to work. They knew what it meant to go to work and to, to be creative with their talents and their gifts. It wasn't even really driven by materialism, you could say. I mean, there's some of that, but it, it was really rooted in a, a background of religion, no matter what religion it was. It could have been Jewish, it could have been Christian, they could have been Catholic, whatever it might be. Um, whether you're talking about the Protestants who came here from Europe or the Catholics that came here from Europe. Um, or, the, or the Jewish immigrants, they all had the ability to work hard, and they, they understood what it meant. And even in, you know, in the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of this fleeting. I remember we had a, uh, a young man who um, came to our church just for a couple of weeks, but he was an Indian guy, and he owned the, the, the uh, coffee shop across the way. But he started here at um, Rite Aid, and I remember befriending him one day, his name was Summit, and he, he came to one of the Christmas dinners. And I'll never forget the first Christmas dinner he came to. He was, oh, I got something for you and Ambika. You know, I thought, oh, you don't have to. No, no, really. And he gave us this big bottle of, like, alcohol. I'm like, oh, my God. He didn't know, you know. 
So it was kind of interesting. But, um, you know, but he worked hard. And he went from a, a, a checker at Rite Aid to owning his own business, to owning several businesses, to getting his degree and getting married and having a family. I mean, it's amazing. And sometimes we take for granted what we have here in our country. And so a lot of that comes out of a person's religious background. It doesn't even have to be a Christian background because they have a commitment. They believe that somehow their hard work matters to God. And it does. It does. And, and we've seen that. But unfortunately today, um, you know, the, the religious, the, the society we live in today is really <clears throat> not about religion at all, right? Um, nobody wants to have anything to do with God. But when you have a high accountability to God, it seems to motivate a person as to their work. And unfortunately, we, we are living out um, Romans 1 today. We are living in Romans 1. And by that I mean we have rejected God completely as a country. And we have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. We have rejected the Bible um, you know, if you just look over at Romans 1, I'm just going to read this for us because it's, it just speaks so much truth um, where we're at today in our world. In verse 18, Paul begins to talk about God's wrath. And he's talking about God's wrath on the unrighteous, on people who are refusing to come to God in repentance for Christ's forgiveness. And so he says in verse 18... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They exalt the truth? No, it says they suppress the truth. They, they try to hold the truth down. They don't want the truth to be known. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, there's no excuse, because God has shown it to them through his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are what? Without excuse. They are without excuse, it says. Verse 21, for although they knew God, or knew about God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, useless, you could say, in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Do we see this going on today or what? And engage and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Uh, people today are just off their, I mean, they're living in a, in a different universe. Um, you know, we have, what, what, is, what has it been, maybe a week of a little bit of heat? And the world's coming to an end. I mean, if you talk to somebody two weeks ago, man, this is the coldest summer we've ever had here. And now it's like, oh my gosh, we've got to spend billions of dollars on global warming because global warming is a fact. And, you know, it's all because of us humans. And when you think through it logically, it just makes absolutely, absolutely no logical sense. The fact that a bunch of humans can overthrow the climate of the world, which, by the way, the Bible says God's in charge of, not us. Okay, um, it's just ridiculous. But they're, they're, they know what they're doing. They're just after money. They have an agenda. But it says, you know what? Um, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, here's why, they exchanged the truth about God what they knew about God, they exchanged it for a lie. And they worshipped and they served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Once again, he says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Well, what are these dishonorable passions, Paul? He says, for their women exchanged natural relations for, their, for those that are contrary to nature. 
and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This speaks of homosexuality in every form. It's wrong. It doesn't honor God. It's not the way God created us. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure this out. If God created us to be homosexual, we would never be here. Right? I mean, it's just, and and we kowtow to this less than 1% of society that is setting the agenda for everyone else. It's completely wrong. And it says in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and God gave them up to a debased mind. This is where we're at. They're they're not even thinking straight. The fact that these environmental gurus and these people that talk about global warming and everything and all this carbon emission and stuff, and then they fly around in their private jets. But it's okay for them. Okay? Um, Because they pay extra money. It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This is a debased mind. It's a sick mind. It, it puts yourself first in all things. It says in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, here's what they do. They're not afraid of that. What do they do? It says they not only do them, they continue in that lifestyle, but they what? They, they, they celebrate it. They give approval to those who practice these things. See, we have rejected not only the gospel in the scriptures, but we've, we've really rejected basic morality in scripture. I mean, a society that finds any morality in God's word is gone because moral values don't mean anything today. Uh, Biblical moral values are really, you could consider them the enemy of today's society. We've gone through this revolution, this moral revolution, sexual revolution, and what does it do? In the end, it affects exactly what Paul is talking about here at the end of Second Thessalonians. It, it affects our attitude toward work. <laughs> it really does. The whole concept of work has so dramatically changed, it, it no longer has any kind of uh, motive to, for people to work. Um, so the meaning of work has been really sucked out of everybody from the top right down to the bottom. And God is not an issue in anything, if you stop and think about it. He's not an issue in the way I conduct my own life, my own personal life. He's not an issue in my marriage. He's not an issue in my job. He's not an issue in my education. He's not an issue anywhere in today's society because they've taken God and they've removed him. They tried to. So God is not an issue. Therefore, there's no value beyond what I say has value. Right? It's a very individualistic attitude. And and this is what it it comes down to. Uh, So when you, you try to hire a worker, they're not so much worried about putting in a hard day's work and and getting a wage for it. They're more concerned about, well, what are you going to do for me? I mean, they turn the tables. You know, as my employer, what are you going to do for me? That's not the question that should be asked. If they're offering you a job, it should be, well, how can I please my employer? But that's not where we're at today. And so we've gone through this biblical view of work, and and just quickly we said that God exalted work, he commanded work. We see that because he gives us six days of of, uh, work and one day of rest. He sets the example for work, God works at things. The Holy Spirit works at things. Jesus Christ works at things. And work is a normal part of man's existence. It's a gift from God. 
and it affirms everything that we can do for the Lord. And so, as we turn our hearts to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I want to ask you to stand. I'm just going to read verses 13 and 14 and 15, and then we'll just do a little review and continue in our study and close out this section. He says, as for you, brothers, Paul writes, do not grow weary in doing well, doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter... He says, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as the enemy, but warn him as a brother. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our hearts to these just brief verses as we close off our study here on growing not weary and well-doing. And Lord, pray you'd apply this to our hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we talked about a couple of these points, three of them actually. We said the problem which existed among the Thessalonian believers, and it says that they were walking in idleness. They were walking in a disorderly manner. They were walking in a way that God had not prescribed, you could say. And it, was, it meant to be out of step. It, it meant to be uh, walking in an um, odd way. And really, we said the, the best way to understand this word of walking in idleness is to go to the antonym. And the antonym basically says um, it, it's, it's a word that basically means that you submit to authority in every area of your life. And so what he's saying here is they're unwilling to submit. They're unwilling to submit to God's authority concerning this issue of of work. And then secondly, we said, well, what's the principle that affects this problem? And he points it out there. We saw it in verse 10. The issue is, is willingness, not ability. We said, if anyone is not willing to work, what? Let him not eat. That seems harsh because that's not what our society says today. Today, the society says, oh, if you don't want to work, then it's up to other people to feed you. Now, if people don't have the ability to work, that's different then the church should care for them. But we learned that we're all going to die on time, that we can't extend our days here on earth. And so we need to have a proper understanding of, of work in this principle. They were eating, but they weren't working. And even though they could work, they were unwilling to. And Paul says, no, it shouldn't go that way. Um, there, shouldn't, there shouldn't be any food on your table if you're not willing to work hard. And then the third thing we said, the practice of other believers toward those with this problem. Paul was addressing work in this issue in the church of Thessalonica, and he said, you know what? If these people are not willing to obey what God says to do concerning work, then he says, have nothing to do with them. Withdraw from them. Okay, take yourself away from them. And so we asked the question, well, when is it right for a Christian to withdraw from another Christian? I thought we were all part of the same church. I I thought we were the church of Christ. We're united. We're supposed to have fellowship. And now you're telling me that I should withdraw from another brother or sister in Christ? And we explained this last week. And just in review quickly, we said in the case of doctrinal errors in Romans, it told us that when someone is not teaching in accord with what Scripture says, or they're teaching a different gospel, you shouldn't have anything to do with them even though they call themselves a brother or sister in the Lord. Shouldn't have anything to do with them. And then secondly, as far as divisive attitudes, people within the congregation, people within the church who have a divisive attitude, they're always trying to divide, they're always causing problems. He says, avoid these people, Titus 3.9. And then thirdly, we said, in the case of deliberate immorality. In other words, People who are in a lifestyle of deliberate immorality, they know it's wrong, they don't care, and they continue to act in an immoral way. Paul says, don't have anything to do with those. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, we saw that in that case, uh, there's actually a, a person who was involved in an illicit relationship with a family member. And Paul said, hey, you need to deal with this. You, know, you don't just close your eyes and let it go, go under the rug. Um, and then the fourth thing we said in the, in the case of determined rebellion, and we read Matthew chapter 18, if your brother or sister sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. 
Right? It doesn't say go to the pastor. It doesn't say go to the elder. It says if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That's the first step. You got to go to that person. Hey, you said this. It offended me. This whatever, whatever it might be. You did this or whatever, and get it straightened out. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. It ends there. But if he doesn't listen, then you take somebody else with you. You take one or two others, two or three witnesses with you. And if he refuses that counsel, and if he continues down that determined rebellious stage, then it says that basically you tell it even to the church. And then if he doesn't listen to the church, ultimately the idea of church discipline is always restoration of those caught in sin. But if they're not restored, if they're unwilling to yield their heart and repent, um, it says that you should treat him as a Gentile or even as a tax collector, even though they're part of your church. (laughs) So there would become a time where if you were involved in some illicit behavior, immoral behavior, somebody pointed it out to you, and then you didn't listen, and they brought two or three other people, they didn't listen, maybe they came to the elders, and you didn't listen to that, and then finally we tell the church, and you're still not listening, there would come a time where we would have to say to you, you know what, we love you, we pray that you will repent, but you're not welcome here anymore. We don't want you in our church. You don't see that going on today in churches. (laughs) Churches throw a very wide net (laughs) because uh, of a variety of reasons, but they throw a very wide net. And you know what? This is not a thing that is done within a week's time. It's not even done sometimes in a year's time. Sometimes it takes much patience to go through that process. But that's how you would deal with someone who is determined that they're just going to rebel, rebel, rebel. And then the, the last case is basically the disorderly conduct or, or the idleness that Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 talks about. Uh, keep away from this brother who is walking in idleness. And so that brings us to this, this fourth uh, point here. We've looked at the problem. We looked at the principle and the practice. But the fourth point brings us up to verse 14. And, and he talks about the purpose of this practice. What practice is he talking about? He's talking about this practicing of withdrawing from a brother or sister in Christ. He says, if anyone, verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Okay, we covered that. Why? That he may be ashamed, it says. That he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And there's, there's three things here, basically, that I want us to see. First of all, it's the reason for withdrawing, and that is to restore him. We don't, restru- we don't re- withdraw from someone in this situation hoping, you know what, we're just going to kick them out of the church. No, they're a brother or sister in Christ. We want them to repent. We want them to be restored to the fellowship. But this is the reason why you withdraw from them, so they would understand the gravity of the the nature of their own rebellion against God. It says that he may be ashamed. Um, Not that he may never be in your midst again. So we have to understand that. To shame him for his lack of being obedient to God. That's the purpose. Um, Your reason for withdrawing fellowship from a, a brother or sister in Christ is always, always to restore them, to restore them. Not to keep that person away. Now, interestingly enough, this is the third time Paul had to deal with this issue. The third time. And this church was a pretty good church. But he had to write to him several other times. And, and anyone who still refused to obey his instruction in this letter was basically, in his mind, being willfully sinful. And so that's a little different than than somebody who's just innocently doing something they didn't know was wrong or whatever. But he commands the rest of the assembly to take special note of that person. In other words, you call them out by name. Um, He's marked out 
for serious attention, not only by the leadership of the church, but by the congregation. And he says that the rest of the congregation was not to associate with him. He's still maybe your brother or sister in the Lord. And so you really need guidance. You need the Lord's wisdom on how to do this. The word, when he says that don't associate with him, literally means to mix up together with. You know, you're not, you're not denying that person an audience, but you're probably not going to be hanging around with them. Do you understand? You're not, you're, and when you do speak to them, you're going to be reminding them of where they're at in, their, their, in the fellowship, that they need to straighten this thing out. Okay, And a lot of times, it's been my experience when you bring these, this subject matter up to people who are having issues within the church, um, it's usually once or twice, and finally they don't want to talk to you anymore, and they stop coming. And so you really wonder, well, are they really of us? Are they really, really in Christ? These are people who are professing Christ. So the, the pressure of isolation was to bring about... Um, repentance on their part. Why isn't anybody talking to me from the church? Why is everybody isolating me? Well, because you're in, you're in sin, brother or sister, and you need to repent. And hopefully that's what it would lead to. And so the purpose of this third step in church discipline, this, the, the discussion of verse 6, is that those who, would, who are refusing in the context, the ones who are refusing to go to work, for whatever reason, Paul said it doesn't matter what the reason is. He doesn't even give a reason. Um, he says that if they refuse to go to work, they should be put to shame. Put to shame. It, it literally means to turn in on oneself. In other words, you can't be around other people, so maybe you just have to focus on yourself for a little bit and get things straightened out. And the idea of isolation from the fellowship would cause these sinning believers hopefully to reflect on their situation, reflect on their condition, see themselves for the, the wicked sinners that they are, and that they would be ashamed. And that they would acknowledge it, and that they would be willing to repent and change their behavior. And so repentance and restoration of the sinning person is always the goal of church discipline. When we hear the word church discipline, we always think, oh, they're going to kick somebody out of the church. No. No, it's, it's for restoration. Sometimes it ends where they don't come to the church anymore. And sometimes as part of this process, you do tell them you're not welcome here anymore until you repent. But it's, it's something that we don't see a lot of today. Um, and it's never to be approached in a kind of flippant manner. Um, I remember somebody told me one time, oh yeah, I, I, I was actually in a church and they, they did church discipline. It was so cool to be there and see it. And I'm like, wow, really? I mean, it's not like a circus. I mean, this is a church of Christ we're talking about, right? This is it's not a good thing when a church has to employ church discipline. It's a bad thing. It's not something we should anticipate and you know, break out the popcorn, let's watch the show, you know, that kind of thing. No. Um, but when it happens, uh, it, it needs to be done in a way that's honoring to the Lord. So he says the reason for withdrawing is that, secondly, the relationship with this individual, whoever it may be, it must not change. If they're truly a believer, you're still one in Christ, you're still a brother or sister in the Lord, and that's why Paul puts in there, look, don't, don't hang these people out to dry. Don't regard him as what? The enemy, he says. He wants to remind them, look, this is a brother or sister in Christ who's fallen into sin, and you have to what? Warn him as a brother, or admonish him as a brother. So if the, the person truly knows the Lord, no matter what the problems may be, our relationship with them, other than this isolation process, should not change. We don't start praying for their demise. We don't you know, say, ah, oh, they should just go to hell. No, they're a brother or sister in Christ. Our hearts should break when we think of a, a brother or sister in Christ who is willfully going down an avenue of, of sinfulness without a, a willingness to repent. Even though you 
avoid them because of the problem, as we call her, that they might be ashamed. They're still your brother. They're still your sister in Christ. You need to be praying for them. The goal is always restoration. Um, and, and, and since this isn't gone to the fourth and final stage here of the discipline process, uh, the faithful members of the assembly are, are not um, to regard the one being disciplined as an enemy. See, until the church actually says, you know what, you haven't listened, you've done this, we've done everything we can for you, you're no longer welcome here, then that's, that's a different time. But even then, if someone is disciplined out of a church, you don't you know, run to the other aisle if you see him at the supermarket. <laughs> you know, Hopefully you'll show concern and you'll show compassion. And you'll want to um, bring it back to that point of, brother, you know, sister, I wish you would you would turn from your sinful ways and you could rejoin the fellowship. Um, so the relationship must not change. The reason for withdrawing is, is to shame them. And then the third thing here, the response to him is critical. And this is very important. It says there to warn him, uh, nutheteo in, in the original, and it means to admonish. Um, and you know what? I've, I've found that in churches, a lot of people don't do this. They refuse to do this. Uh, many people will never do this. We will never warn someone. We will never admonish someone. Um, they blame somebody for what they have done, and they try to get rid of them, and they try to put them out of the fellowship. But I found that they never do what the Bible tells you to do. Go to that person and warn them. Um, it says to warn them or admonish them as a brother. And so he hasn't been put out of the fellowship yet. He hasn't been, as 1 Corinthians 5, 5 talks about, handed over to Satan. <laughs> uh, not to that point yet. Uh, the, the congregation was not yet to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector, but to admonish him as a brother. And, and this really provides this needed balance in this disciplining process. The motive here for disciplining a sinning believer is what? It's love. It's love. It's because you care for them. You love them. And Gentiles, uh, or, or uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, any trespass, those of you who are what? Spiritual, restore, it's always restoration, such a one in the spirit of, he says, gentleness. Or kindness. And then he gives this warning. Each one looking to yourself. Examine yourself. So that you will not also be tempted. And so when it comes to this, this process. Even those who are carrying out the process of church discipline. According to Galatians 6.1. Have to be very careful that they're looking at their own lives as well. They don't want to be caught up in sin. Along with this person who's receiving the discipline. Um, and so he, he points this out and he wants them to understand that, that, you know what, all these things that he's been communicating to them is important. But when it comes down to the last couple of verses here, he's talking about something that is very practical for them. And so he's trying to explain to them, look, if you're not going to work, you shouldn't eat. Um, you know, and we like to eat. People like to eat. It's important to eat. If you don't eat, you'll die. Okay, so eating is a good thing, but also work working is a good thing, and and this is the point. And so our our culture's work ethic has eroded and gone down to the point where where biblical work, um, the biblical understanding of work is missing, and so a lot of even believers within the church are constantly trying to figure out ways to get free stuff from the government, free stuff from whoever, that whoever would give it to them. They don't even really care. They just want the stuff. And you know what? We have to be careful with that. I'm not saying we shouldn't help people who are down and out, but I'll give you a very good example of something the government's trying to do. Luckily, the Supreme Court stopped it, but was this student loan debt forgiveness. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense whatsoever. 
And, and when you think about it, it's, it's not, I'm not that they're concerned with this, but it's definitely not fair. I mean, are you saying you're going to take out a student loan, you agree to pay it back, and now you're going to say, well, I'm going to go against my word and I'm not going to have to pay it back because they're going to give it to me. Well, that wasn't the plan. That was the deal. I mean, try that when you go buy a car. You know, hey, I, I agreed to make these payments. I'm just not going to do it anymore. Just forgive it. You can't do that. I mean, there's going to be consequences somewhere, right? And, and even with this, you know, I get the mentality of helping these students out. They have this overwhelming student debt and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? There's a lot of people who have a lot of credit card debt. Why not forgive that too? Give them a break. Forgive your mortgage. I mean, this is the day and age we live in today. And what does it do? It motivates people to just go for the free stuff. Not to go work hard, not to make something of your life, not to pursue a vocation where God has called you to work and and to really honor him with your work. And so, you know, it it reminds me of 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. It says, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. See, people watch the way you work. People notice your attitude about work. And this is what Paul is trying to get us to see. In Romans chapter 15, verse 14, Paul said this. He said, I myself am am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. He's talking to the church of Rome there. Filled with all knowledge. And then he says this, and able to instruct one another. This goes back to this aspect of admonishing one another. You know, it's not the pastor's job. It's not the elder's job to warn other believers within the church. It's really the congregation's job. And I'm part of the congregation, so it would be my job in that fashion. But it's not something that's just delegated to me. Oh, take it to the elders. That's their job. No. If you see someone living in a way that's dishonorable or open sin, you as a brother or sister in Christ need to go to that person and explain the situation to them and try to win them back. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, Paul says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed... So Paul literally says, I'm not trying to shame you, even though in Thessalonians he says you want to withdraw from them so they are shamed. But here he says, I'm not trying to shame you, but to admonish you as beloved children, to warn you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And I would say that, you know what, to be honest, in the church today, the reason congregations are not practicing this one with another, uh, it's, it's kind of in, in Colossians one twenty eight. he says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You know why Christians aren't doing this one with another? It's because of the simple fact they're immature. I mean, how many times have you heard this. You know, boy, you need to go talk to Oh, who am I to talk to? I have my own issues. I mean, and well, then you need to get your issues straightened out. You know, and deal with the business of, of living a, a holy Christian life that, that you can be in a place like the Apostle Paul where he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul wasn't lifting himself up here. Because he goes on to say that, you know what, as I imitate Christ, right, that's the goal of every believer. And is that our goal when we're confronting another brother or sister in Christ, or are we just trying to get vengeance or get, you know, get the issue off our back and put it on somebody else's? Um, if, there's, if there's somebody not walking right with the Lord and you know that it's a problem, ask yourself this question, what do you do? to help them, if anything, as a fellow believer? Or do you just hide away from it and pretend it's not there? Do you ever seek to win that brother or that sister back through repentance? Um, I mean, even in the case of, we could say, deliberate 
immorality, someone who's definitely caught up in an immoral lifestyle and they're, they're kind of rebellious in it. Um, the brother that committed incest in 1 Corinthians that we talked about, do you know that because of the way it was dealt with in that church, that brother repented before 2 Corinthians was written? So God uses this to purify his church. Um, Only the church would not win him back, and so Paul had to rebuke the church in in 2 Corinthians. He basically wrote them and said, you know what, you're putting an undue burden on this brother who, who committed this act because he repented, and you should welcome him back freely. And so it's very important that we understand how this, this goes. We ought to um, be able to forgive. We ought to be able to offer comfort, throw our arms around people who come back to the fellowship. And it's individuals that do that. And we need to think about that for ourselves. So if you, if you know a brother or sister that's caught up in something wrong, um, ask yourself the questions. What can you do? Do you reach out to them? Do you ever call them? Do you ever try to uh, find out what's really going on. I remember when I was at First Baptist Church in Fremont as a youth pastor, my first year there, somebody made note of somebody who was caught up in some illicit material they were looking at, and uh, their, their attitude was pretty much, well, we put them out of the church. And they were a believer. And I remember asking um, the pastor who was very genuine in his concern and stuff. I said, have you contacted him lately? And he said, well, not within the last year or so, but I haven't heard anything from him. I said, well, I'd like his, his phone number. And so I actually called this individual. And you know what? Um, he did repent. And he did acknowledge his addiction. And, and you know what? He got some help. And he actually came back to the fellowship. And But... But the attitude in the church when I got there was like, you know, it's not worth going after him. And you know what? There's there's parts of that that's convicting to me as well because sometimes, you know what? It's just a lot easier to wash your hands of people, especially people that are troubled people. And you just kind of let them go. And, you know, uh, but I know that in my own heart, I pray for those individuals, things like that. And, and sometimes God is leading them away. So it's not, it's not always the attitude of, well, everybody has to come to this church. You know, not that. But it's more the attitude of don't give up on people, no matter where they're at. And some of you have, you know, have children, have grandchildren that, you know, relatives that are not walking with the Lord. And you've tried your hardest. You've prayed and you've prayed. you poured out yourself and you've, you, you've, you've given your resources to this and it just seems like a waste. I, my, my attitude would say, don't give up. Don't give up on people. Don't quit. And, and I remind myself, I mean, I'm so glad God didn't quit on me. You know, before I came to Christ. I mean, it took me multiple times to hear the gospel before I responded in an affirmative way. Um, you know, there's enough, I would say, meanness in the church. There's enough evil, even in the church, to send us all to hell many times over. Um, and I, I'm just glad for the grace, for God's grace, for his forgiveness, for his love. And so we have to express a caution here that we should take a stand against certain things. Paul is clearly pointing that out. But we also have to be careful which side we're on. Our our goal should be to win them back. And we should be praying for them. And our hearts should break that they're not repenting. Uh, We shouldn't do anything like this with glee in our heart or gladness. Like, finally get them out of here, that kind of thing. And you know what? We've probably all been there at times. But it's wrong. It's, It's a wrong attitude to have before the Lord. And so we need to repent of that and confess that to the Lord as well. And so we do it with the attitude of the desire to restore the attitude to heal. And so we go with the love of, of Jesus Christ, with a willingness to forgive and help this brother or sister in Christ, whatever it might be. That's what God wants from us. That's what God expects from us. And when we don't do that, I think it grieves the heart of God. And that's, that's why next week we're going to look at these closing verses. But 
the last point is the peace that is needed. And if you just look at verse 16, he closes off this, this letter with really what you could say is a benediction. And he says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. He knew that people who are living in a situation where they're not repenting of their sin, where they're living in a way where they're being shamed by a congregation, there's no peace there. You can't just go home and, and go to sleep when you know that, that you're not doing something right before the Lord. The Spirit convicts you. The Spirit causes you to be unrestful, to be restless. And you know what? Until you come to Christ, until you give this issue to Christ, our prayer is that you remain restless, (laughs) that you don't have peace until you know the peace that Christ provides for us. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I know that... uh, More than anything else, you desire us to have unity. You desire us to have peace within the congregation. And for the most part, I believe we do. And Lord, I pray that if there's any issues in people's hearts, even today, Lord, that you would cause them to confess them to you. And Lord, that they would be restored to full fellowship with you and with everyone, Lord. And Lord, help us to do our part as members of this local church. Even though we're a small church, I pray that we'd be caring one for another, that we'd be concerned one for another, that we wouldn't be shy uh, or unwilling to warn or admonish each other as needed within the congregation, knowing that it comes from a heart of love and concern. Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be from a heart that's self-righteous or indignant or vengeful, but Lord, one that would come with pure motives. And Father, we know that uh, you see our hearts. You know what our minds think. You know what we want to say even when we don't say it. (laughs) Lord, you know everything about us. And so, Lord, we're dependent on your grace each and every day to live this life that you've called us to live. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to do so. We thank you that We have a a completed text of Scripture, the Bible, that we can read and apply to our lives. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that this morning, if there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ and in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, that today might be the day that they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer that when it's prayed from a sincere heart that's broken, over the condition of their sinful heart, Lord, that you will hear that every time and you will answer that plea and you will restore them and you will forgive their sins in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that as believers we will be able to take that message out to this lost and dying world and that it would be encouragement to us to speak truth with love to all that we encounter. And, Father, we thank you and pray that you bless our time of fellowship across the way as well. And Lord, we think of of Sharon. We pray that you'd be gracious to her as she recovers from her knee surgery and pray for her husband as he cares for her. And and Lord, just pray that she would heal up quickly and without uh, any uh, infection, anything like that. Pray that she'd get back on her feet quickly and back with us as well. And we just thank you and pray bless our food to our bodies across the way as well. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one... One last song.